Welcome back to Kaleidoscope, a podcast sponsored by the Abbasi Program in Islamic Studies at Stanford University. I'm your host, Ambreen Bhatti. Okay, so fair warning, if you've listened to previous episodes, this one is going to feel just a little different. For starters, I'm going to be talking to our guests about art. You know, the kind of thing that you should really see and not just hear about. So consider this an experiment. And I am going to get a little personal. I hope you'll stay with me. For the past few months, the Cantor Center for Visual Arts at Stanford has been home to She Who Tells a Story, or Rawia in Arabic, an exhibition showcasing the work of 12 women photographers from Iran and the Arab world. The show's just about to end, so if you can't make it to the Cantor before it does, check out Kaleidoscope's website where you can see some of the work. You'll see Bushra al-Mutawakkal's depictions of a mother, her daughter, and a doll who go from being partially covered to almost fully covered in eight photos. You'll see Gohar Dashti's pictures of a newlywed couple in a fictionalized battlefield, and you'll see Shireen Nishat's portraits of women overlaid with Persian poetry. According to the museum, the artists explore identity, narrative representation, and war in daily life, inviting a broader understanding of the Middle East than what Westerners glean through media reports. The museum says this collection of stories about contemporary life especially refutes the belief that women from this region are oppressed and powerless. So that's some heavy stuff, right? To be honest, when I read that, it felt really heavy to me. I care a lot about how the media covers topics that aren't that familiar to American audiences. I wouldn't be hosting this show if I didn't. And I know from personal experience that many people believe that women from Iran and the Middle East are oppressed and powerless. As for identity, narrative, representation, I am pretty much obsessed with those things. So when I talked to Rania Matar and Tanya Habjuka, two of the artists from She Who Tells a Story, those things, the weight of representation, identity, the preconceptions or misconceptions people hold about these women, those are the things we talked about. Here's Rania discussing the portraits she took of American and Lebanese girls in their bedrooms, collected in a series titled A Girl and Her Room. For me, I want to tell a story of universality of the girls. Uh, I have a teenage daughter. The motherhood affected all my work from beginning to end. But that one was inspired by my daughter. After Ordinary Lives was done, I was kind of ready to photograph something closer to home and to be a mother to my kids. And... uh, and I started observing how she was changing, and and I was fascinated um, was fascinated with watching her. And I started this project, but eventually, as I was photographing American girls, I realized that you know, 25, 30 years earlier, I was exactly like those girls, and that um, there's such a universe growing up in a different country, and that there's such a universality to being a teenage girl. So again, for me, it was. You know, all you hear, especially now on the news, is them, us, them, us, and all this. And, you know, all those girls are going through the same thing at the same time in their lives. And they're all trying to find out who they are, dealing with their identity. And and for me, that was important to show. So it's important when you look at the pictures. You can't sometimes tell if it's an American girl, if it's a Lebanese girl, if it's a Palestinian girl, if it's a Christian girl, if it's a Muslim girl. 
It's important when you look at the show, I could tell you that some of the women you don't think are Muslim are Muslim. So at the end of the day, there's such a, um, in the, now in the US, you assume all Muslim women are veiled or um, there's oppression or whatever. And I could talk for Lebanon anyway that these girls have all, you know, the same dreams and aspirations, whether they're Muslims or they're Christian. It's not even, it's a non issue. And it was a non-issue with me photographing them. And for me, it's important for that to come across. Tanya's photographs, meanwhile, show girls and women in Gaza. Women of Gaza, for me, it was definitely an exploration I wanted to unpack, which in 2009, it was right after the devastation of Operation Cast Lead and uh, this heavy siege that was imposed on the people. And they were just, the Gazan people were really traumatized. And... I was curious that in media, I kept seeing the story again and again was the loss of women's rights under Hamas. Now, I am no fan of Hamas, and a majority, I was just back in Gaza a couple of years ago. People are even less fans of Hamas than they ever were to begin with. But at the same time, I still took issue with the fact that people were discussing that one element as opposed to the greater impact of what devastation they'd just been through and the loss of rights for everyone, not just women, what the siege meant. So I decided to go and unpack that a bit. And uh, what I found on my project, Women of Gaza, the one that is now exhibited here, uh, I found this amazing strength of character. And I found that it was the women in many ways that were holding uh, a very still raw and, 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 and family that were in great tumult that still hadn't even processed what they'd been through. One of the women I interviewed, uh, she was the head of a, a, a deaf uh, NGO for children. And because of the isolation, uh, there's no program to allow deaf children to, to get their tojihi, to graduate. And so she's helping them learn skills to try to work. And But, but this woman who's very elegant and very together and, and in appearance, very secular, I asked her, I avoided the question, but towards the end, I asked her, well, what happened? You, you were pregnant during uh, Operation Cast Lead. You had a small child. What did you do? And this perfect composure just kind of shattered, and she burst into tears, and she just talked about how terrified she was, but she didn't want her child to see that, and she wanted to shield the child from that. And I realized that these women were really working to shield their families. And, 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 and another interesting thing that came out of of, of the siege in Gaza is the, you know, every Gazan that you speak to, man, woman, child, they always say, thank God we have the sea. We feel so isolated, we can't breathe, but thank God we have the sea and the internet. This is their mm. outlet. And uh, I just, I don't know. I mean, it was just these, these moments. Like it was, it was one of the exhibit, one of the photos in the show was the young girls who had graduated, uh, had finished Tojihi. And it's a very stressful exam. And they got to go on their big outing for this, this, this celebratory moment, and it was a five-minute boat ride. That was their big out. That was as far as they could go. But there was still the sheer joy on their faces. And so, you know, it, this in, I was using, I, w- I was focusing on women to analyze the greater effect on society and what it meant to be under siege in Gaza. Like a, a professor that I adored, a linguistics professor, um, he studied in Scotland, and he actually would put out of his free time uh, conversational English classes once a week, and these girls would come, and they would just, he was trying to get them to engage in English, but they, it was an outlet for them, because again, everyone was just, you. they would talk to you, and they would speak so rapidly, because they were excited, because they, they wanted out, they wanted to see the world. And uh, this professor told me that girls, women, are becoming 
there's such a need economically for them to work. And they, the top paying jobs in Gaza are NGO and UN. And they take the top students to graduate. So it got to the point where young men were hitting up professors and saying, hey, which girls should I be interested in? Which ones are making her, you know? But, but that was my initial in into society there in Gaza. As I looked at both Rania's and Tanya's photographs at the Cantor, I couldn't help but be struck by something. All of Rania's showed women without a head covering, and all of Tanya's showed women with it. It was hard for me to imagine that being unconscious. I thought it had to mean something. Being very aware of representation. I, I tried to show a diversity. In Gaza, I did have uh, some uncovered women in the series. I have a a woman who happens to be Christian who was jogging on the beach, you know, and then looking at her, but surprised perhaps, not judgment, looking at her. But the strongest images I have do happen to be women who are covered. And um, there were there were women who told me that they felt that they needed to cover, that the environment in Gaza was becoming more oppressive. And when I went back a couple of years later, I certainly saw that. I saw, but, but at the same time, I, I saw Nikah uh, and that, bothered me. A lot of women uh, from the Levant were seeing more numbers of women wearing niqab, and it's kind of anathema to us in the Levant. It's not culturally part of us. So I had my own uh, resentments about it and, and prejudice. And what was funny is these images, some of my Palestinian friends in, in Jerusalem and, and uh, Ramallah were, were angry anytime that I would show a woman in niqab, because why are you showing this? This is not who we are, you know. But I, I told them, I said, actually, it, we have to accept them. It is who we are. They, are. they are part of our society. And I got to know some of these women, and they ended up being some of the strongest characters that I, that I met in Gaza. So again, it's like the hijab is always an issue in Western media. And we joke amongst ourselves, Rawia, the Rawia girls, we're like, God, if we see another photo essay entitled Beyond the Veil, you know, there's this hyperfixation. And it's just, as, as Rania said in a discussion we had yesterday, it's a non-issue. It's just... But yeah, I want to just jump in because it, it is, is a non-issue. But I realized at some point in ordinary lives, I ended. I, I became interested in photographing the hijab because I was photographing in a Palestinian refugee camp, and there was this young girl who was nine years old who spent about an hour in front of the mirror trying to put the headscarf on, and her mother was not covered, was not wearing the hijab, and the mother did not want her daughter to wear the hijab. But the daughter would like start braiding it and switching colors and change. And it hit me that it's it's becoming fashionable. Like this is my daughter's, like exactly like my daughter straightening her hair in the morning because she wants to look like everybody else. So there was an element of it that's it's it's also a new phenomenon, but it's also like the trend in some way. But to, so I did become interested in that. And at some point in the work, I also photographed the nuns though because I think really the headscarf it's you know it's such. A, controversial issue, but you go to, to church, all the Greek Orthodox nuns are covered. And, Orthodox and, Jewish women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then and in one exhibit, we actually mix them up, and people cannot tell who's the nun and who's the veiled woman. So it's actually a piece of cloth. But to come back to that, it's interesting because the curator, at this point, we're talking about Tanya's work and about my work individually, but she's seeing the show as a whole. And just like the pictures maybe she picked of Tanya, they're all wearing the hijab, all the pictures she picked of mine, not, nobody's wearing the hijab. Mm-hmm. But in the book and in the project, many girls are wearing the hijab. Their answers helped me a lot, but I only realized later when I spoke to coordinating curator Colleen Stockman how unsettled I really felt. 
The thing is, I wore hijab myself for 16 years from the age of 11 to the age of 27, from elementary school all the way to my first serious job as an associate at a corporate law firm. It took on an outsized importance in my life, and not because I wanted it to, but because it felt to me like everyone else did. It represented a lot of things, and not all of those things were me, but I rarely got to explain that. It was on so many days such a joy, but on so many others it just meant too much for me. So when I finally sat down with Colleen, some of those feelings just sort of spilled out. Here's our conversation. You're walking into an exhibition, and there's another picture of hijab. There's some more stuff about war. I, I just looked at it again before I came down here, and um, I'd forgotten how much of a focus on kind of war and violence there was in those images. And they're there because that's the context, right? Like that's that's in, you know, they're, they're photographs, right? They're a representation of reality on some level. And yet it's hard not to look at that and feel like, I don't, I don't know if this makes me tired or inspired. I don't know what it makes me think. I really don't know what I think even now. Mm-hmm. And talking to the artists was so inspiring. When I talked to them, I was like, oh, you're my people. Like, this is so wonderful. And mm-hmm. I think I really needed that. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, that isn't something that's always possible. When you're looking at art, you don't always get to talk to the artist about it. And so I wonder what you know about the reaction of people to you know, the show has been when they don't get the chance to talk to the artists about what was really going on and what they were thinking? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. Certainly, people being able to recognize themselves on the walls of a museum is a key part to feeling welcome and excited and inspired in a museum at all in that specific exhibition or beyond. But that that is a fundamental aspect to me that was important about the exhibition that um, we have to be we have to be seen in order to want to see others, you know, and really see ourselves. So that feels so that show in a, in a sense, it feels like um, it's reflective of other perspectives. And, you know, it's not another Dutch painting of a still life or something um, that people may not connect as much to. And who knows that it could be, you know. Um, somebody from Lebanon really resonated with Rania, you know, as a Lebanese photographer. But um, but it's really just about seeing different types of images, different regions, different areas and countries that may not be um, as prevalent in contemporary photography shows or whatever it may be. But I think it's really that that ability to recognize a part of yourself, whatever it is, whether it's an affinity, um, affinity and identity, uh, family. Um, you know, self-expression, whatever it is, that that is a key part to sort of having a connection with a work of art and that creating that transformative space where you feel understood. So that that's key to me, regardless of the sort of um, troublesome aspects of putting together a regional show. That's that's key. And that's what I've heard from some of the students and people that have come through that it's just like, oh, this is what I needed or oh, finally, you know, finally, I see myself here. And that's that's what you know. That's what it's for. What if the part of yourself that you see or recognize or see represented is the only part of yourself that is ever represented? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's the tension. I think I feel with it is that, um, especially, and I don't remember the name of the artist, but I want to say her name is Bushra, and I can't remember her last name. But, you know, hers were the images of a woman who's becoming increasingly more and more covered up. Um, with her child and um, and the emotions that are kind of present and then start to disappear on her face. And that one just did something to me because I have an almost three-year-old myself and I haven't made any decisions about what she will or won't wear really. Even now, 
if she, you know, she wants to wear a dress someday, it's like the only restriction for me is will you fall off the slide if you're wearing it so you can wear it on the weekends or something, you know. But mostly I actually feel very strongly about her dressing herself and whatever she wants to wear. And I don't know, I was looking at those images and I was thinking, well, I put on hijab when I was 11. And I totally felt it was my own choice and I still to this day do. But it, of course it was influenced by my surroundings and so on. And I spent years obsessing over the visual representations of Muslim women. And so to walk into a show where that is the focus, I didn't know what to think. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think it's a good thing when the answer isn't totally clear in art, but it was still something that made me wonder. I don't know what the message is, and of course there are a million messages too, but I'm so curious about what, if anything, you know about how your audience, different sectors of your audience have responded to the experience. Oh, this is really cool to see Muslim women up here. Oh, this is Muslim women being shown in terms of what they wear, which is always how we talk about Muslim women, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think especially that's something that the artists um, spoke really well about when they were here, that, you know, um, they're sort of like, they'll get over it. It's just there's so much more to it. You know, it's just so much more complicated than, um, than that. And it's a shame to have that be a focus, right, as that kind of obscures all these other aspects of lived experience of women and mothers um, in all those places. And... I think actually the the motherhood aspect is interesting because that became an unexpected theme in some of the work and certainly with Rania and Tanya. The motherhood aspect of the exhibition, that turned out to be really important for me. I guess in some strange way, my identity as a mother has replaced the identity I felt I carried for so long. The identity of a woman who was a Muslim woman, first and foremost to others, even if that wasn't first and foremost how I saw myself. That identity felt so vast for me, for the most part, linking me to women all over the world. But I'd be lying if I didn't admit that it also made me feel like I lived under a microscope, perpetually on view for others to evaluate and assess, which I think is the feeling that came rushing back to me at the exhibition. The magical thing is this new identity, this new sisterhood, it feels more universal than anything I've ever experienced. It lets me connect to more people than ever before. It's why I connected with Rania Matar and Tanya Habjuka so strongly when we met. We're all someone's child. We all have mothers. For that lens on the exhibition, I couldn't be more grateful. Special thanks to Dr. Ramzi Salti, lecturer in Arabic at Stanford and host of Arabology, and Stanford Religious Studies student and Marcus Center associate Kate Bridges-Lyman. Thanks also to the Abbasi program, both for supporting programming for She Who Tells a Story and for supporting this podcast. And thank you for listening. If you have thoughts about what we discussed, we'd love to hear them. Find us on Twitter at Kaleido underscore show or on Facebook as Kaleidoscope, Reflections on Islam. Or just email us at kaleidoscope at lists.stanford.edu. Till next time.